Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast, where every Friday we have a scintillating 30-minute conversation with some of the most interesting people in the sport. And as usual, today is no exception. We have two women who recently set the female FKT on the Wind River High Route. We're going to talk about that in depth because this is a terrific route, and they did the uh, second fastest time ever, and I am speaking with uh, uh, Emma Nier and uh, Sarah Arona. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yes, hello. <laughs> and you two are in Boulder, Colorado right now, is that right? And do you both live there full-time, or what's up? I mean, here's the deal, Emma and Sarah. Normally, we... Um, look up the people who've done these great routes. We have a little bit of a bio on them. But when I look you two up, I don't really get that much. And yet you did a terrific route in a very fast time. And so I'm kind of starting from a blank page here. So, for example, when I uh, look you two up on Ultra Sign Up, which I often do, I don't get much. I don't see Emma. And Sarah, you have uh, one Ultra on there. And then on our website, you both have one FKT, this one. So help me out here. Uh, tell me, what is your background? How did you come to do this? Um, this is Sarah. And let's see, where do I begin? Um, I've been really into sports my whole life, particularly running. And But I didn't pursue it more seriously until college. Um, I was a part of the student-led triathlon team at UC Riverside in California. And I also discovered trail running and rock climbing in college as well. So I was just really fascinated with cardio sports and strength training and was obsessed with it all. And um, since then, I've been traveling far and wide. Yosemite National Park and across the West, just exploring trails and climbing and to my heart's content. And I also did the first 700 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail in 2014 um, and had to bail for various like injury and relationship reasons. <laughs> and yeah, I've been really fascinated with endurance sports for a very long time. Nice. And would you call yourself a uh, a dirt bag uh, climber, hiker, or how, how would you self characterize yourself? Um, maybe. <laughs> like I, you know, I definitely have dealt with some dirt bag tendencies and and behaviors with friends, and you know, just not showering for a week or something. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I'm just a very curious, adventurous person who loves to express myself in nature. Nice. And Emma, how about yourself? And you can tell us anything you want here because we know nothing about you. <laughs> awesome. Um, maybe one of the reasons you didn't find much was because I recently changed my last name. I recently got married. Maiden name, it's the first time I've actually said that out loud, um, is Murray. And... Um, like Sarah, I really found the mountains or discovered how much I loved them and loved myself in them when I was in college. Um, but before that, running was kind of always a part of my life, not in a focused or focal kind of way, but, you know, in, in retrospect, I now see it as this exercise I've done really my whole life. Um, 
to kind of get away, to spend time by myself, to process things, especially as a teenager. So, you know, I don't think of myself as a runner necessarily all the time, but running actually has been a part of my life for more than 10 years in a really important way. But I didn't totally start running in the mountains until I went to college um, and then took some time off from college to spend more time in the mountains. Um, and that's kind of how I eventually made my way to Colorado. Uh, pretty much just a magnet to the Rockies and to the open spaces out here. I started getting more and more into trail running just because that felt like the most efficient way to see as much as I could. And loved backpacking and camping and rock climbing, but the lightweightness of trail running, I just was really drawn to. And I was fascinated by how far and how long the human body can go and how much you can see and experience. And I'm thinking right now of the four pass loop, for example, um, like being able to run that in a day and to see all of that in a day was just so intriguing, uh, rather than trying to do that, you know, in a three or four day backpacking trip. And so that was maybe the first time I really got into trail running was, um, doing the four pass loop two years ago now. Um, and four then pass last loop's year, a good start, isn't it? Four pass loop is <laughs> iconic. Uh, people are familiar with it. And if you get it in there, this year was, didn't open until very late due to the intense snow, but normally it's covered with wildflowers. So it's a good introduction. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It still remains one of my favorite runs in the whole state. Now you two have describing yourselves primarily as runners. Now the wind river high route is not much running. <laughs> so what, what's up with that? Maybe we ran like 10 to 15 miles, the whole thing, you think? Yeah, very small percentage. Yeah. We were actually running. Um, <laughs> I right. definitely classify it as an endurance route, or at least the style in which we did it was an endurance mission, not like necessarily fast, fast packing. Yeah, style. right. Exactly. Now the it was the first person to finally do it was unfortunately not me, which is what I had hoped, but it was Andrew Skirka. And he uh, did a really nice map set for it and so on and so forth. And he did it in four full days, four days, two hours. But he was flip-flopping it. He yo-yoed it at that time as he was methodically working it out. And uh, then you did it and actually establishing the fastest route at a time, uh, which is three days, 17 hours, just this August. But then a week later, uh, Skylar Williams came back and took it down under three days. Now, those two both did it unsupported, which is the standard thru-hiker, uh, uh, backpacker-type style. But you were, had support. So someone walked in and met you at various trail junctions, or how did that work? Um, it was um, my husband, Patrick, and this is Sarah speaking. Um, he hiked in the Glacier Trail um, to where it ends at Dinwiddie Creek. And so he met us there to resupply us for our final day. Oh, so you had one resupply. Yes. Uh, interesting. So that means <clears throat> that the previous night, I mean, you, you were carrying full gear then is what that essentially means. You carried your, your sleeping gear, all your food, et cetera, et cetera. 
Correct. Ice axe, crampons the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Patrick brought in some more food for us. And fresh socks. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Socks and food. <laughs> yeah. The necessities. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So that means uh, <clears throat> if you would have carried uh, you know, a kilo more food each, you could have easily, and maybe, you know, another pair of socks, you easily could have done this uh, self-supported or unsupported. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's solid. I would want to clarify that because it's very, very remote. So a supported trip is actually problematic. uh, (laughs) You you need a really dedicated crew to provide support on this. So for people who are listening. Yeah. (laughs) We had trouble collecting friends to help us out. So yeah. (laughs) Right. So listeners who are considering doing this, which I highly recommend, should note that uh, unsupported is basically the style for this route. Not that, you know, having you receive a little bit of support was not perfectly good, but other people should consider that this is basically an unsupported trip because it's not that much harder and it's going to be really difficult to find anyone willing to walk in. I mean, it's a full day to come in and support. Hiked in 28 miles that day. (laughs) Hang out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And obviously you two could have, uh, you know, carried a little more food and still would have made it work. So let's just, let's just talk about the the route for those who are not familiar with it. The Wind River High Route is modeled after the Sierra High Route, which was created by Steve Roper for the, the Sierras. And it was supposed to be staying as the ethic, the style was to stay as high as possible without getting technical. A very clear directive, but that requires figuring it out and really sussing it out. I had been there personally on three different occasions doing the north, the south, and then the middle loops to get it figured out. And then Andrew Skirk and I sat down on his living room table and really worked the whole thing out. And again, I just wanted let people know how good I think this route is because this goes right down the entire Wind River Range bounded by the southernmost and northernmost 13ers in the range, Wind River Peak in the south and Downs Mountain in the north. So it's very logical. It's not contrived. You can easily make sense of it, and yet it doesn't go up on top of any technical ridgelines. And yet it's very, very distinguishable from the Highline Trail, which is on the west side. And that's a trail the whole way. Highline Trail is perfectly good, part of the CDT. Just like the Sierra High Route is above and much more interesting than the John Muir Trail, the parallel here is the same. When you're on the Wind River High Route, except when you're passing through certain areas, you're not going to see anybody else. So (laughs) is that your experience? Yep, definitely. Especially the more north we went, the less people we saw. Yeah. You feel very wild and very alone out there. Yeah. Well, tell me about the most wild experience that you had. For me, is when you first get on to the up there bike, you said Dinwiddie, and you're looking on the east side, the leeward side of the range, and those are big glaciers. And the creeks are running that turkey melco, uh, turkey turquoise white color from the ground up glacier rock. 
And it feels a little bit like Alaska up there to me. Mm. Yeah, I have not been to Alaska, but you definitely get that just huge, small feeling of being kind of in the juxtaposition of just all the giantness around you. And all of a sudden you feel so, so small. Yeah. And mixed in with the process of erosion and entropy and mountains tumbling in to silt, you know, <laughs> and it's, a, it's pretty, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what was a, a crux moment for either both of you or either of you? <laughs> There are several, I feel like, (laughs) depending on, yeah, there's all types of mental crux, physical crux, being really emotional or, you know, feeling pain. And um, for me personally, and this is Sarah, I didn't have a lot of experience traveling across snow. Um, I mean, I was born and raised in SoCal, so I'm... You know, my experience with winter didn't happen until I moved to Colorado, which is really (laughs) hilarious to me. But, um, yeah, so Emma was definitely a guide for me when it came time to climb a snow slope or glissade a thousand feet (laughs) or put on the crampons to go up a steep, hard ice, like, goalie. (laughs) Um, So I definitely had some... Well, well, Sarah, a, quick, a quick question. So you had practiced beforehand or no, you just actually learned it as you went? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I, I had very basic experiences beforehand. Like in college, I had gone snowshoeing and we went up the steep slope, but then it was time to come down the mountain and all my friends just slide down so easily and we didn't have ice axes. And so I just used my snowshoes in my hands to slow me down. (laughs) But that was pretty much my only just very, you know, raw experience doing those sorts of snow activities. So, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's pretty solid. So the the crux on the snow to me would have been Bonnie Pass. Was that the case for you? We didn't go over Bonnie Pass. Um, I think we went the other side of that is uh, Alpine Lakes. Am I correct? Alpine Lakes Pass? Um, no, Alpine Lakes Pass, if you're going south to north, is before you get to uh, Bonnie. So you, Alpine Lakes Pass, and you drop down, you go through that knife edge glacier, then you cross over into Titcomb. Oh, we went up, um, we went up Blah Rock Pass after Alpine Lakes. Gotcha. Okay. All right. And then after that, how would you go towards Downs Mountain? We went up West Sentinel Pass to the Gannett Glacier um, and then to the toe of um, Sourdough Glacier. No, 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 not not Sourdough. Grasshopper Glacier up to the Divide and Iceberg Lake Pass to Downs Mountain yeah. Nice. Gotcha. Well, that's, that's a lot of glaciers and uh, there's crevasses there. These are pretty big glaciers. These aren't just snow fields. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, but neither of us had traversed a glacier before. So that was a neat experience for both of us. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, did you watch? A, I had a great conversation with Josh Sanders who's done, you know, 50 states, the high points and various other 
uh, really long uh, list-based projects. And he said he learned how to climb on snow by watching YouTube videos. <laughs> I was shocked, but is that that's you, Lisa, learned a little bit uh, how to do this elsewhere. I yeah, this is Emma. I have a little bit more snow experience than Sarah. Um, just playing around in the Colorado mountains with some more experienced friends. So yeah, I mean, both of us are very competent climbers, rock climbers, and so I think we both found that it was pretty easy to translate some of those skills back and forth between the snow and the glaciers. And I think also just having a, you know, smart senses about us in general terms of mountain travel. So while a lot of the technical side of things might have been new or newer, um, we both knew kind of how to assess risk and what comfort felt like and what safe discomfort felt like. So we were still able to make good decisions and, you know, understand how our bodies were moving across the land and across the landscapes. Um, there are definitely some moments of some snow slopes where I was just like, yeah, Sarah, do this and do this. And, you know, we'd be trucking up there. And in my head, I was like, oh, my God, this is so sketchy. This is horrible. And I'd look back and go, Sarah, that's so great. You're doing awesome. This is great. Um, but, yeah, it was neat to celebrate, you know, her first snow cooler back there. And I mean, there are a lot of firsts for both of us, but, um, and I think too, having two people there, you know, we were able to make decisions together and figure out things that we didn't know together. Um, so and still confidence in one another. Yeah. Cheer each other on. And, <laughs> good, know. good. That's a good description. Another aspect of this, and you two apparently are experienced rock climbers. So you had, uh, that was not the challenging because there isn't really any difficult. There is no difficult rock climbing. There's plenty of scrambling and uh, rock hopping, a few stream crossings, but really it's the snow fields that are the most technically challenging part and, and, and sometimes narrowing into a snow gully. Um, but what about the backpacking part? See, this is interesting because you were out there for uh, basically four days and so you had to really have your lightweight, I think, you had to have your ultra lightweight style down pat in order to go light and be efficient. Yes, definitely. Um, I definitely was drawing from past experience on the Pacific Crest Trail and trying to have a base weight below 15 pounds um, and then just accepting however heavy the water and food were going to be. So... That was fun to get really nerdy and technical about weights and measuring everything. And we were contemplating, okay, is it, do we bring this puffy or this puffy or no puffy or sleeping bag, no sleeping bag? You know, it was just really fun to hash that out with Emma. Yeah. We ended up going with a pretty minimal, um, approach. I mean, we didn't bring sleeping bags. We each had individual bivy sacks, um, I brought a Z light sleeping pad and Sarah went super hardcore and didn't even <laughs> bring a full sleeping pad. She just had a little square to put under her <laughs> hips. <laughs> um, and then I also had a silk liner and Sarah just had a emergency bivy or a, what are those called? Emergency blanket blanket type thing. Yeah. Oh, hold on. Hold on. That is going hardcore. Now this, this is three nights. Was it not? 
Correct. Three nights. Yeah. 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 And you're up there uh, in Wyoming and middle of August. It's, you know, it's, the nights are certainly going to be in the 40s and possibly in the 30s. And you had no sleeping bags. By a bivy sack, do you mean an insulated up to your waist or do you mean just the, the, the covering? We had um, the outdoor research helium bivvies. Um, so it was fully waterproof, had a bug net screen. Um, so it was nice to just like tuck into the sack at night. And then Emma had a lot more insulation as far as like the sleeping pad and the silk liner and things like that. Um, and I did bring a puffy. So I just wore the puffy to sleep and wore my rain pants even over my leggings just to add warmth. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I put that in the hardcore classification. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And you stayed warm at night apparently or not warm enough. Okay. Yeah. Warm enough. yeah. We survived. Okay. <laughs> well, the ultralight part is truly a factor. Like you said, you can one can nerd out, and when it gets down to a certain place, it becomes, as Andrew Skirka said, stupid light. But on the other hand, one pound is a big deal because you're doing a lot of vert and you're moving continually, and so weight really is a factor. It's efficiency. And the weight's on your upper body, so one could, it's kind of moving you around. As you're hopping from rock to rock, excess weight on your back is quite impactful. And I've always felt that, you know, a lot of people go to do Gannett. They go up Titcom Basin, right, uh, which is a full full day in easily. Mm-hmm. And then they have to do a real early start or do another camp right at the base of the glacier. And I think a lot of people fail on Gannett because they're too tired from the backpacking. They, they carried in, you know, a cast iron frying pan or, you know, extra shoes or blue jeans or something. And they're just too worked from just getting there to do the summit. So it sounds like you two really managed the, the, the hiking part very well. Yeah, I think so. And we, I mean, we spent a lot of time pouring over what we were going to bring and what we weren't going to bring. And I think at the end of it, we both felt, I mean, I used, Everything in my pack at least once, except for we brought mosquito head nets and we didn't have to use the rain jackets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when I think we were moving too fast for the mosquitoes and it never rained on us. We had amazing weather. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. That's yeah. really helpful in the winds. Well, if someone else wants to go do this, what would you tell them? Good question. <laughs> I would tell them to, oh, I don't know open to everything that will come their way. I mean, the route was both harder and longer than we were expecting. I mean, it's just, you can pour over the maps and Sarah actually created this amazing Google earth track where, you know, we were able to fly through the route using Google earth and, and actually see, you know, theoretically what what we were going to be moving across. But even with that, Everything is so much more incredible in real life. So, so the actual rocks and flowers are more incredible than they look on Google Earth. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, yes. Yeah. yeah. A lot more sheer looking. I mean, Google Earth can only be so accurate with its imagery. And so everything looks more rounded. So that was really fascinating to see, you know, the memorization of the maps and the, the images we had and, and seeing that come to life. 
when we were actually there was really incredible. And I'd say too, learning about the history of the range beforehand was really special and really powerful and made the whole experience more meaningful. And Sarah did an amazing work reaching out to some people in the area and some local historians um, beforehand for us. Yeah, I was able to talk to... Um, her name is Dee Lanette St. Clair, and she's Eastern Shoshone. And we had a phone call and just chatting about history and, the, and her experience in the mountain range and what she loves about the mountains and why they hold it sacred. So that was really great as well. Wow. Is, that's, that's traumatic. Is this going, you, do you have a trip report that is published anywhere? I do have a trip report on my website, bivytales.com. Um, yeah, and it, it mentions a lot of the emotional side to my experience as well. And, and my relationship with, with risk and, and why I do these things, um, you know, with the history of like, you know, I lost my mother to cancer and so that's a big driver of why I do things in life. And so I intertwine that narrative as well. Well, I will link to that website, if that's okay with you, on our written show notes. Now, did you use Andrew Skirka's map set? We did. Mm -hmm. Very grateful. He was very thorough with his comments and waypoints, and we really appreciate the work that he he and you and everyone else has done. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Andy is thorough. So uh, the map map set's a, a total bargain, really. I will link to that on our show notes. So as we wrap up here and again listeners should go to the written show notes to get your website and a link to the map set on skirkas and i will put in a personal plug saying the wind river high route i think is world class i think it's one of the best i've ever seen and on that note what do you two have in mind for what's coming next for yourselves well for me um i'm about to head on a four-month road trip, mostly for climbing with my husband, Patrick, but I also, while in Yosemite National Park, um, I would really love to attempt the FKT on the high camp loop, which is 49-ish miles. Um, and I'd like to do it in 13 hours. So that's on my radar for what's next. <laughs> that's this fall. Yeah, I'll probably do it at the beginning of October. Good, good. Well, I hope we hear more about that soon. Okay. And I'll be cheering Sarah on from Colorado. <laughs> um, and I'm really excited to take a little break from training, at least. And I spent the last two years doing a lot of running and, and training for a lot of this running. And honestly, it gets kind of exhausting and takes a lot of energy and a lot of time. So I'm really excited to step back a little bit, do some more technical rock climbing, some more scrambling, and really just run for the sake of loving running and not to get this weekly mileage or try and build up my strength to, you know, attempt these really incredible lines. Um, so we'll see. Going to wait for some inspiration to come. Right. Focus. You took... F- you used a lot of focus, a lot of commitment. You got it done. And now it's time to relax, be open, and maybe see what comes next. Yeah. Yeah. They're thinking, well, you know, there is a scrambling series in your hometown of Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> but uh, 
we're not going to put that in the show notes, but I just thought I'd let you know. And it starts uh, this week. But hopefully you'll find out about that and you'll have a good time there and be safe and have fun and go fast always in that order. (laughs) Yes. Thanks, Buzz. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.